This is the murderer you know. Be honest. Yes. Since you actually had names this time, did you go and look up? No. What happened? No. You said you weren't going to be able to sleep. You just didn't sleep. I just, I love to be tormented. (laughs) (laughs) That tracks, that tracks. (laughs) No, I wanted to have it like an onion peeled away layer by layer Uh by you in front of me and the audience. Okay. That's good. That's good. (laughs) Hopefully we can accomplish that then. Okay. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Welcome to our official one year, but we aren't, we aren't (laughs) celebrating. We're celebrating on our 52nd episode. Well, of course, back then I wasn't a member of the team. I was only spoken of disparagingly (laughs) like... Our mother who made us watch true crime. (laughs) Our mother who thinks she knows everything. Our mother. (laughs) That's good. And then finally, finally, you had to admit, I do know everything. And and you invited me on board. I think my first appearance was just sort of a, a guest appearance on a case maybe I was knew about and then I just that's how it started (laughs) and then I just wormed my way in well welcome back to episode 51 oh my god 51 it's like Christmas Eve (laughs) and you didn't look ahead so we're gonna start unfolding the layers of the onion now that's peeling peeling oh I'm sorry I don't think you can you can't fold an onion (laughs) no that's too bad it seemed right to me. Peeling the layers of the onion, which makes you cry. So we might cry. Too. Oh, yeah. This is a very good analogy. Yes. Is it an analogy? A metaphor? <laughs> a metaphor. I think it's a metaphor. It's not a simile. A simile uses like or as. Am I remembering that right from elementary I school? I should know these things. You should. Embarrassing. <laughs> Embarrassing. Well, everyone, this is part two. Nothing new there. If you missed last week's episode, I would highly suggest that you go back because many very, this is a pretty dense case. There was a lot of information released to the public about it. And so if you weren't here last week, you missed a lot. You missed a double homicide all the way through to the discovery of two sets of remains and a child missing. Two sets? Yep. Well, I remember we sort of had a skull fragment, but that's different than the body that was then found? The body was in a whole other state. Wow. West Virginia. West Virginia, Mountain Mama. Mountain Mama. (laughs) Take me home. Country road. Country road. All right. A skull fragment was found and then a body in a completely different state. In a completely different state. And the skull fragment was found in North Carolina, right? Correct. As well as part of a leg. Mm. 30 miles from where the double murder took place and the couple who was murdered, their child was kidnapped and missing. And we have made it about a month and a half from the crime. We're doing this in sort of a timeline. So we've made it a month and a half from the crime to September 30th. And we're going to start, we're going to pick up today, October 1st, still awaiting those DNA results from the skull fragment and the part of the leg. Hmm. That was all that was found? No, other things were found. Okay. We'll get a little bit more into it today. Like I said, this is there's a lot of information on this case. So this is still a pretty a lot of detail, but still pretty high level overview. I'm ready. October 1st, 2002, like I said, we're still awaiting those DNA results from North Carolina. 
Now the ME's office reminder, they did release some information that this body seemed consistent with a nine or 10 year old white female with medium brown, possibly shoulder length hair. And they believed that the person had died within a year, possibly during the summer. Hmm. Now on October 1st, the ME's office stated that the cause of death for the nine to 10 year old child was a single gunshot wound to the head. Hmm. And the manner of death was classified as a homicide. Well, and it's also similar to the couple that was killed, Mm -hmm. which were also killed by a single gunshot wound to the head. It's very similar. Hmm. They're still trying to identify these fragments that they found, these bits and pieces. They actually found 16 teeth in the remains. So a dental expert was called upon to help pinpoint the child's age further. And he agreed that the 16 teeth found were consistent with a nine-year-old Caucasian. Interesting. I don't know how they can tell that from, this is probably sounds really ignorant to many true crime fans and people (laughs) listening, but I don't know how they can tell that from teeth. I guess it's mineral content and I don't know I mean dental work that's been done I I truly have no idea how they can tell this from teeth yeah I've never heard of identifying somebody's race through teeth fragments but obviously we have to check into that because they can do it yeah very interesting very very interesting Now, the search of the property where the skull, other bone fragments, and teeth were found continued. On October 1st, divers spent the better part of the day diving in a second pond on the property, not the one that had been drained and was only mud at this point, but one that still had water in it. And they did find some bones there, but those bones were determined to be animal bones. Now, on Wednesday, October 2nd, the long-awaited DNA results were finally released. And these... And (laughs) I'm waiting. These were results from the leg bone, and they were inconclusive. After the forensic experts performing the test did not have enough sample to complete the test. Enough sample of what? DNA? DNA. From a leg Remember, bone. it's 2002, so forensic DNA analysis is really in its infancy. They hmm. don't have the same sort of capability as they have now to amplify DNA from a small sample. Right. So they were really not working with as much as they would be able to now. So in response to this, a single tooth and some additional hair were sent to the lab for further testing. Mm -hmm. And even though they were hoping to get answers by Friday, the investigators were really anxious to get answers sooner because they have been waiting for a number of days already. They found these remains on the 25th. So it's been over a week. Right. So they reached out for some help from any dentist anywhere who had treated Jennifer to examine the teeth as no identifiable dental records had been found for her. Well, that's strange. She seemed to be a very loved and cared for child. She didn't have regular dental checkups? Yeah, I'm not sure. They weren't able to identify any dentist who had treated her in any capacity. Very strange. On October 5th, Jennifer's obituary was published in the local paper. It simply said Jennifer R. Short, 9, of Bassett, was found September 25th, 2002. She was the daughter of Mike and Mary Short, who both died August 15th, 2002. And if that seems abrupt to you, uh, yeah, it literally was in the source material I have, which was generally very detailed and thorough and article after article after article, it was that abrupt. There was never any, the police got the DNA results back and it was confirmed to be her. The last news was that the results were inconclusive. They sent more things to be tested. They reached out for a dentist and then literally the next piece of information released about this Hmm. was her published obituary. And I guess based on, what is the word I'm looking for? The, how decayed, that's not the word I'm looking for, but the body was, it must mean she was killed not that long after her parents. 
not like they did think that he kept her not he they don't have a theory they don't have a suspect they say this we'll hear this many many times but they believed that she may have been kept alive for some time oh really yeah well what does for some time mean I don't know. They haven't really released anything like that. They kept so many things incredibly close to their chest for the integrity of the investigation. They would say little things like that. Like, yeah, we think that she may have been alive for some time, but no details ever followed. Yeah. And some for some time is the vaguest timeline ever. Yeah. So her obituary appears or her death notice and unceremoniously. Once again, another question occurs to me. They found remains in North Carolina and West Virginia. Which ones were identified as her? Both? The North Carolina ones. So we didn't hear any more about whatever was found in West Virginia. Someone may have heard more about it. In researching for this case, I certainly didn't go down that rabbit hole. Maybe that was just another missing child. I'm sure it was another missing child. It has to be, right? Mm. Unless it's like a Bigfoot child. (laughs) Now, listen. Okay. The property in North Carolina was one and a half miles from, they're finding all of this out. All of this is kind of evolving at the same time. It was one and a half miles from a trailer owned by a man named Garrison Storm Bowman. Now, way back in our timeline on August 13th, 2002, Bowman told alleged, I feel like I have to use allegedly. I just, (laughs) it it is calling to my spirit. Bowman allegedly told his landlord, Gary Lemons. Yes, they are both named Gary, by the way. (laughs) Garrison used the nickname Gary, who owned the property his trailer was on, that he had paid a man from Virginia to move his trailer, but the person wouldn't do it immediately. And he wasn't happy with the timeline. I think we need to remind our listeners that, yes, that was our That Mike owned a company that moved the father, the victim in this story, owned a company who moved trailers. That was his job. Right. Now, Lemons told the police that Bowman had already paid for the service and that he told him the man would have to move his trailer or give him his money back or that he would kill him. Lemons Lemons also indicated to the police that he saw Bowman with a pistol in his hand on August 15th at the home of some mutual acquaintance of the two. And Lemon's story did not stop there. He also said he saw Bowman installing a false floor in his 2001 green Ford van and that he was drilling holes in the side of the compartment below the false floor. Wow. Bowman's trailer was searched and mattresses, cushions, blankets, sheets, hair samples, a vacuum cleaner, and telephone records were seized. They also seized nine maps, one of which was marked to show the area of the Shorts' home. Mm. The, the plot sh- thickens. <laughs> yeah, the sheriff said, though, just because the marks seem big, I want to say this now, that the sheriff did say that the marks were more general rather than specific. And he didn't get too excited about them. It could have been the antique store across the road. It could have been the burger place, you know, a quarter mile away. They were sort of marks in the area, but it's not like he put an X on top of their house and was like, X marks the spot. (laughs) Okay. Back to Bowman, he had not been seen in the area of North Carolina where his trailer was and where he had been living since August 16th, the day after the murders took place. Hmm. He left a note in his mailbox that he was going to Alaska, but a change of address form indicated that his new address was going to be in Pennsylvania. So it was sort of unclear where he might be. So he left his trailer. Mm Mm-hmm which had not been moved, even though he had paid to have it moved, saying he was going to Alaska, but he left a change of address saying he was moving to Pennsylvania. Yes. 
very complicated. Now, Lemons shared all of this, and to further complicate things, Lemons shared all of this with investigators pretty early on in the investigation, like within the first days after the double homicide took place. And they did sort of vet all of it, but it didn't really seem particularly significant until remains were found in the same general area as Bowman's home. I'm surprised they didn't look into this a little harder in the beginning. I mean, they seemed very pedal to the metal and had so many people on the case. I mean, yeah. it seemed like a good lead. They did look into it and for whatever reason, just decided, eh, back burner that one. I don't know why. <laughs> As our lawyer has told us, and it now is like forever burned into my brain, we don't know all of the details of any of this. It's just the little bits and pieces, as much as we research and we think we really know a lot. Well, that's true. There's so because, much more that we don't know, especially in this case, because it's unsolved. Yeah. Unless you're one of the lawyers involved, you don't know everything. Mm -hmm. Even if you were sitting on the jury, sometimes you don't know everything. You know, there's always those moments when they jump up and say something and they march all the jurors out and argue something. Then the mm -hmm. jurors come back. So, yeah, I felt like I needed to throw that little tidbit in there. And now back to our timeline. Aha. Uh -huh. On October 6th, officers were making plans to travel to Canada. Why, you ask? Actually, I was about to start singing Oh Canada. I don't know why I to infuse these episodes with bits of song. Patriotism. <laughs> oh Canada. <laughs> it turned out that Bowman had been living in Canada for the last three weeks and had been arrested there on an unrelated charge and was being held in custody. Did he mix up Canada and Alaska somehow? <laughs> That's such a good question. You know, from the South, even though the South won't claim Virginia, but many people <laughs> would call it the South looking up to the great North. It may seem very confusing. Yeah. That great wild North. So he was found in Canada. Yes. And, and had been arrested. Yes. Now, officers said, they were very careful to say, I would even classify it that way, that he was not a suspect, but they wanted to talk to him. And they thought that he might be a witness to the killings. The English call it a person of interest. I think we call it that too. We do? Yes. Oh, really? Yes. I thought that was a very English expression. No. Oh, no. We haven't arrested him. He's just a person of interest. That is definitely <laughs> something that we say in, in America as well. Okay. <laughs> By October 9th, Canadian officials wanted to deport Bowman due to a possible violation of immigration laws. That was the unrelated charge, by the way, that I mentioned. He had also been ticketed in the U.S. for drunk driving and driving while disqualified. And all of this formed a strong case for his deportation because those charges in Canada, according to the laws there, are criminal offenses, which makes it illegal for him to enter the country. Canadian officials remained unclear about how he entered the country. They suspected he probably entered through a port. And American officials remained unclear on what would happen to him if he was deported back to the U.S. since he hadn't been charged with any criminal offenses here yet. Well, I mean, he's an American citizen. We have taken back. Yeah, but they were worried about him then disappearing off into the shadows without getting well, to true. speak with him. Well, I guess they should be waiting at the border saying, you're a person of interest. <laughs> yeah. We need to talk to you. Yeah, everyone seemed kind of unsure about what was going to happen with this guy. But one friend of his in Canada who knew him to travel there from time to time was definitely less undecided than all of the various law enforcement. And he was quoted as saying, as far as I'm concerned, he's the nicest old man I've ever met in my life. The nicest person we've met from a faraway land to an isolated land in many, many years. What faraway land? In Nuvik. They only have one town in this entire region. It's in the Northwest Territories. 
So he was saying our person of interest was the nicest. Kind. He said that he was helpful, always happy, trustworthy, hardworking, kind, and was definitely not hiding while he was in Canada. He was out. He was fixing stuff. He was friendly. They were visiting, chatting, driving around together, palling (laughs) about. Everything was above board. Well, for some reason, I didn't imagine this guy was older, but this guy described him as a nice old guy. He wasn't old. He He wasn't old per se. He was like in his 50s or 60s. Oh, my God. (laughs) I was just, for whatever reason, imagining he was in his 30s. Don't ask me why. 66. Mm, that's That's getting there. That's just a hop, skip, and a jump to 70. On October 10th, investigators set out on the 2,300-mile journey to Canada for Bowman's deportation hearing, which was scheduled for Friday the 11th, the next day. Investigators at home continued to search for evidence, hoping to find a dump site for more remains, another bullet casing, a piece of material, literally anything that could link this man to the crimes conclusively. So they were going to Canada to get their hands on this guy. Yeah, he had a deportation hearing scheduled and they hoped, I don't know why, and I don't know a lot about deportation hearings, but they hoped to speak with him then. They were going to go to the deportation hearing and talk with him, but they decided against this for whatever reason. So if they weren't there... And he got deported. What do they do? Just drive him to the border and say, start walking across the bridge and don't come back? Good question. Also on October 10th, those investigators back at home that were searching in North Carolina, they determined that he had disposed of some property, a trailer and some cars. They also learned that he referred to himself as a suspect, even though they had only ever said they wanted to talk to him, which they found interesting, to say the least. I wonder when he started to refer to himself as a suspect. In Canada, in this whole arrest and deportation thing. Hmm. Yeah, he apparently mentioned to law enforcement there, you know, I'm a suspect in this double homicide and kidnapping back home. I don't know why. I don't know why. He wasn't saying it as like, be scared of me. But I think he was saying it as like, well, don't deport me. I don't know. I don't really know. Well, maybe he was trying to say don't deport me because I don't think Canada has the death penalty. And so I think if you're facing the death penalty, maybe they don't deport you. But this guy hadn't even been charged yet. True. I don't know what he was thinking. So the 11th, the day of his deportation hearing, when the investigators arrived, they decided to just wait until after his hearing, until he returned to the U.S., Just to avoid complicating things, this hearing was hours long. It was over the telephone. It was just a lot to add on top of that. Why was it over the telephone? I mean, he didn't have to come to... I'm not sure. Deportation headquarters? You know what's funny is my first reaction was like, oh, maybe like COVID or something. (laughs) But this was 2002. (laughs) So obviously not. But that's where my brain automatically went. After the last three years. (laughs) Yes, how that altered our our brains and our memories. Yeah. But during this, for whatever reason, telephone hearing, it was determined that he would be deported due to his 1997 conviction for drinking and driving in the U.S. and his 1998 driving while disqualified conviction. He told reporters after his hearing that he was a victim of his own stupidness. (laughs) Well, I like a guy who can step up and admit that. I mean, we've we've dealt with a lot of stupid people in this last year. It's and true. I, and I don't remember any of them saying, it's my fault. I was stupid. I don't think he's on the same page of, of why he thinks he's stupid as you are. <laughs> he thinks he's stupid for going to Canada when you can't enter Canada when you have been charged as a criminal in another country. Oh, he should have gone to Bermuda. He should have gone someplace else. (laughs) Who welcome criminals with open arms. Okay. So they're hoping to get this guy home. 
they're hoping that he'll talk to them since obviously he has the constitutional right to refuse. But he had also been charged with driving while impaired during his time in Canada. So he couldn't be deported back to the U.S. the six weeks he had been there. He managed to get another drunk driving related infraction. Well, that's no surprise. (laughs) I guess not. He did also say after his deportation hearing that he did not plan to return to North Carolina and would instead go somewhere that was a deep, dark secret. Ah. But that he didn't come to Canada to run from a crime. He had actually had the trip planned for over two years. So just in case that first comment made him sound like a creep. Don't worry. (laughs) He's not a creep. Okay. On October 12th, Jennifer's funeral was held. The minister quoted the sheriff, saying, Jennifer is safe now. Those words ring in my ear, Sheriff Castle. There were doves to safely carry her spirit, and pink flowers, teddy bears, angels, and poems were placed on her casket by her friends and family members. Mm -hmm. On October 17th, a Canadian judge ruled that the green van... Yes, the one with the supposed fake floor, false floor installed into it, and other evidence seized from Bowman's apartment in Canada could be released to authorities in the U.S., providing the materials were used for purposes of a criminal proceeding only. As opposed to what? I don't know. (laughs) Selling for a profit. (laughs) Strange. After a two-hour search of the apartment he lived in in Canada, the evidence produced included a bag of jackets, sweaters, pants, and a hat, one personal letter, two postcards, paper with drawings, various literature, and notepads, a red and blue sleeping bag, a brown sleeping bag, two cooler boxes with personal hygiene items, and court documents and notebooks. Not a lot of personal items. And this guy is so weird. This Bowman guy. They had a hearing for this too. For releasing the evidence to the US. And he was there. And he for whatever reason decided he wanted to interrupt the hearing to release the materials. To say he heard that Jennifer had been dismembered. What is the point of that? He's very weird, and he certainly is, I don't know, trying to imply he was involved? It's weird, right? Yes. It's so strange. Oh, I I heard she was dismembered. Oh, I'm a suspect. It's like (laughs) inserting yourself into... There are those people, though, that confess to crimes they didn't even commit. Humans are just strange. Because the judge told him that they were only talking about seized materials, so not the time or the place. But it was a weird statement. The officers from the U.S. thought it was a weird statement. I think anybody would think it was a weird statement. Well, because they hadn't released any information about only finding a jaw and a leg. Or the fact that apparently back at home, they had still only found 25% of her remains in North Carolina. Hmm. 75% were still missing. How would he know that? Very good question. On that same day, though, good news-ish, I guess, because the impaired driving charge in Canada was dropped, which cleared the way for Bowman to be immediately deported back to the U.S. Good. So on Tuesday, the 22nd of October, after he returned to the U.S. from Canada, he actually willingly spoke to the investigators for about three hours. They said he was friendly and cooperative And the sheriff further reminded the public that they weren't calling him a suspect. They wouldn't even really call him a witness. At this stage, he was just someone that they talked to. Oh, I know what the English say. They say, they're helping us with our inquiries. (laughs) That's what they say. Not a person of interest. That is an American thing. So he was helping them with their inquiries. He was. He was helping them with their inquiries. And on the next 
day, Wednesday, the 23rd, a judge determined that he would continue to help with the inquiries, I guess, because they, (laughs) the judge ruled that he would remain in jail until being questioned by a grand jury, an event which was scheduled for November 12th. But on the 31st, he was released from custody in spite of the judge's ruling to go home to North Carolina with some friends. What? Mm Mm-hmm. His attorney argued that he had been incarcerated under an improper warrant and argued that the material witness warrant had to be dropped since there was no formal document, no pleading, anything like that, that he was involved in any crime. Despite him saying saying all kinds of weird shit. (laughs) This sentiment was echoed by the magistrate judge who dropped the warrant and by the U.S. attorney who withdrew the warrant. Which I found interesting that everyone was like, yeah, we messed up. We can't hold this guy. We don't have a legal cause to. That is interesting. He was still going to be required to testify in front of the grand jury. And he assured the judge that he would be present. The judge was like, don't forget, you're not off the hook for that. And he was like, don't worry, judge. I'll be there. I promise. And (laughs) after the hearing where he addressed the judge directly, telling him he was not hiding, because that's something else he wanted to add. He was like, oh, hey, can I speak up? And everyone was like, no. And he was like, okay, so remember when I went to Canada? (laughs) I wasn't hiding. I love Canada. And it was always my plan to move to Canada and retire to Canada and Canada's great. And I've had this trip planned for two years. And that's always what I was going to do with my life. So I wasn't going there because I murdered someone the day before I left. And they were like, okay, we told you we didn't want to hear any of this, but thanks for your time. (laughs) And he stepped outside of the courthouse for the first time as a free man in almost a month. But let me guess, let me guess. He's going to disappear. No, no, he doesn't. He doesn't disappear. He comes to the grand jury. We'll talk about it. (laughs) He stays right there in North Carolina. He's apparently essentially like effectively homeless and he's just staying with friends on their couches. What happened to his trailer? I'm not 100% (laughs) clear on that. Maybe it was a crime scene, a potential crime scene. So he wasn't allowed to go back in there. Mm, True. Remember Lemons though? The other Gary, Gary Lemons. Mm-hmm. The landlord, the owner of the property where the trailer was. Yes. Here's the question. What if he just made all of that up about the fight with the trailer mover in Virginia? Well, our suspect didn't confirm or deny that he'd ever had a conversation with Mike. He denied. Oh, so Gary Lemon could have. He could be the one. He could be the one. But what, just out of the blue, he would drive to Virginia and kill a family? Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, did he have any connection? Had he ever been to this town? Had So many great unanswered questions. I was wondering all of these things as well. And apparently the investigators were also wondering. Well, sometimes you do wonder about those people who were suddenly... Very so helpful. helpful. Yeah, and you're like, mm-hmm. okay, how is it that you know so much? <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, too, other than the proximity of the bones to Bowman's home and the map with markings sort of in the area of the Schwartz home, if you think about it, nothing other than Lemon's word at this point from what we know And I'm assuming from what the officers know as well, since this is an unsolved case, really links Bowman to this crime. True. They don't have his DNA at the scene. They don't have a phone record saying he spoke with Mike. They have nothing other than this Gary Lemons saying he told me he was going to kill a guy in Virginia of no name and no location. And Bowman. Who happened to be a trailer mover. That's like the only part. And Bowman denies everything, saying, Mm -hmm. never was going to have my trailer move. Mm -hmm. Don't know this guy. Never spoke to him. Very interesting. Yeah. So was Lemon the one who found the skull? No. The guy who found the skull was never considered a suspect or a person of interest for whatever reason that we don't know. 
Well, I mean, he's just a guy mowing his lawn and found this piece of a skull. I agree. Certainly curious how Lemon has suddenly come up with all this information. Mm -hmm. Because he could just figure Bowman's a good fall guy. Yeah. But we have nothing. It seems like they know something, which I think is what the cops are getting at, too. They know something. The story isn't just entirely, although pin entirely fabricated bullshit to your wall. Because <laughs> we're going to be coming back around. Okay. So the investigators are thinking maybe Lemons is making all of this up. So on November 7th, they have him in to take a polygraph. We know these are useless, pointless, and silly. I mean, maybe that's just my opinion. That's all I'll say. That's my opinion. That they are useless, pointless, I, and silly. <laughs> I think polygraphs are great. Well, so the investigators do too, apparently, because they said that the results <laughs> revealed that he was being truthful, which they already thought was the case. They weren't polygraphing him because they thought he was lying. They were polygraphing him because the results saying he was telling the truth would add some weight to the case in the uh -huh. event they finally got to take things to court. Yeah, but I do think if you're like a stone cold killer that your heart doesn't race when they're asking you, yeah, did you kill somebody? No. Mm -hmm. An innocent person might be like, oh, I don't know. They're like, ah. It's like your father when he goes to the doctors and his blood pressure shoots through the roof. You know, if he was taking a polygraph. White coat syndrome. Yes. He does. He has white coat syndrome. So if you walked in to take a polygraph and the guy giving it to you had a white coat on, <laughs> you would be like, ah. I can only be polygraphed <laughs> by people in the nude. <laughs> and they'd be guilty, guilty, guilty <laughs> on every single question. His blood pressure shot up. We thought he was going to stroke out. So they were only giving Lemon this polygraph to prove that he was citizen of the year. And his story was. Right. But I think it is important to point out that some of the evidence did show that at least a couple of the things he said were open to some degree of interpretation. For example, remember how he said he saw Bowman installing a false floor? He's basically implying that he could hide a child underneath right, in his right. van. So what was in the van? It's a shelf. So it's only covered from the top. Every side is open, apparently, and it can easily be seen underneath. Investigators called it a shelf near the floor above the floor i'm not picturing this but i'll take their word it's a for work it. van you know so maybe to hook stuff up on i don't know either they also went back to those maps which lemons said were marking the short home and they really reinforced what they were actually on for example one was on a campsite one was on a junk store they weren't on like i said their house literally on top of where their house would be so it wasn't quite as cut and dry as this guy was kind of presenting things to be mm -hmm. now on the 12th that grand jury occurred as planned bowman and lemons were there to testify and the announcement about whether either of the men would be indicted was made two days later on the 14th what do you think were they indicted no. <laughs> Not a huge surprise the way that this whole thing has gone. I mean, I think personally they were working together, muddying the waters, pointing Possible. fingers mm. and just creating a big kerfuffle that had the police chasing their tails. The fixes in. Right. Running off to Canada. Mm. Alaska, know. Pennsylvania, <laughs> floors, shelves. Yep. Totally. That was their plan. I guess they pulled it off. I mean, we shouldn't say they're innocent and they were never even suspects. We shouldn't say that? We shouldn't speculate. Well, they were suspects at one point. They weren't suspects. Oh, they weren't. They, they were, were just people of Lemons, interest. I don't even know if Lemons was a... The only person of interest who has ever been named publicly 
is Bowman. And they very quickly were like, actually, no. Hmm. But yeah, in the case of the grand jury, deliberations are closed. So it's possible that the public will never know exactly what happened in that grand jury. But whatever it was, no indictments were announced in the case of the short family murders. From the get-go, it just seemed like somebody was after the girl. Mm -hmm. He had seen her someplace. Yeah. Well, after these men went home with no indictment, and even while searches and forensic tests and interviews and following up on tips continued, and they looked into things like you're saying, were we looking at this wrong? Let's switch how we're approaching it. Was it not about the parents? Was it about the girl? They're looking into all of this stuff still, like they're trying to leave no stones unturned. Right. Eventually, updates and breaks in the case really slowed to a trickle. So as things are coming in more slowly, on December 2nd, 2002, the family home, the lot they owned next door, their business, and every single item inside their home was auctioned off. Mm -hmm. A first cousin of the family was quoted as saying, we're all hurting. It's like they're trying to buy Michael and Mary and Jennifer in pieces and they're going everywhere. Part of Jennifer's going this way, part of Mary's going that way, and they're not whole. I just wish we didn't have to do this. Terrible to watch an entire family be scattered and shattered. It is really, really awful. And like you've said so many times, just the ripple effect of this, the family members who are still alive, that they had to deal with this loss and now they're still grieving and now they're having to lose the house. The, they took a few sentimental things out of the house, but they had to they had to auction everything off. Wow. Six months after the double murder and kidnapping occurred, officers had pieced more of the morning together. They believed that the phone line was cut first. Then Mike was killed. His shot was dampened by traffic and the garage wall. So hmm. the family inside didn't hear it, didn't wake up. Then they believed Mary was shot in bed. Remember, Jennifer's sheets looked almost as if they had been thrown off as right, if you right. get out, you know, toss them over to the other side of the bed when you get up in the morning. So they said Jennifer may have been taken from her bed next, or she might have encountered the perp in the hallway after hearing the shot fired in her mom's room. Mm -hmm. Police had not been able to determine if her kidnapping was planned or happened in the heat of the moment. Still, they were no closer to determining who committed this crime. Nine months after the murder, a man from North Carolina was jailed and facing charges for sending a threatening letter pertaining to the short case to the sheriff's office, who was investigating the murders. Why? What kind of threatening letter? I don't know. I mean, it was a letter like, you the better letter find was these guys? The or? letter wasn't released. Hmm. But I guess for making threats against an officer, he was arrested for it. Eleven months after the crimes, a river was dammed up and diverted near where Jennifer's body was discovered to aid in continued search efforts. Twelve months after the crime, the first memorial bike ride was held and a bridge near where Jennifer's remains was found was renamed in her honor. Fourteen months after the crimes, Jennifer's body was exhumed for further investigative and forensic purposes. Well, it wasn't much of a body. I mean, it was, what, 25%? Yes, it's true. Mm. I probably should have said her remains. Her remains, yeah. And then in December 2003, two months after her body was exhumed, officers returned to Canada to question a woman who they believed might have been able to shed light on the case. Hmm. They visited an airfield where this woman and the person of interest met in August 2002 after she stopped to assist the person of interest who was in distress. Investigators hmm. hoped that she could help to establish a timeline linking the person of interest directly to the case. They believed that the woman was in her late 40s or early 50s and was driving a gray, primer-colored, four-door 1980s hatchback. And a dark green 2001 Ford van was spotted near the airfield around the time of the meeting. Hmm. 
Although investigators admitted that finding this woman would be like finding a needle in a haystack, they were encouraged by the fact that they had at least located the airstrip because apparently there are quite a few of these landing strips with ramshackle little tin shelters dotting the landscape (laughs) in this part, this sort of remote part of Canada. But in spite of those updates slowly trickling in across the second year, no successes were reported. Two and a half years after the crimes first occurred, in early March 2005, some indictments were finally made in the case. Good. But even these indictments, which right straight away, they did not concern the murders of any of the family members. They were viewed as only a very small, limited victory. Two men at the indictment who stated, how do I say this? These two men were indicted because they stated they heard gunshots and even saw the face of the killer on the morning of August 15th, 2002 at the short home. One of the men (laughs) is really the one who heard and saw everything. And then the second person essentially just corroborates the story. So only one of them saw the murderer. Yes. And the other one drove him away. Yes. And they are indicted for leaving the scene of an accident or of a <laughs> well, murder? The man who really saw and heard everything, he said he thought he heard a gunshot, sort of quiet, followed by a louder gunshot. He then said he heard a man's voice screaming, followed by what sounded like a little girl crying and saying no. The story continued that he then saw the man come out of the Shorts home and walk toward a car similar to a 1978 copper-colored Chevy Malibu carrying a rifle or a shotgun. Next, the man returned to the house and carried what appeared to be a body to his car. It appeared to the man who was watching to be the body of a child and lifeless legs were dangling from the bundle. He said around this time, a car passed and illuminated the man's face and the man resembled Abraham Lincoln. Oh my God. So I did tell you to pin something on the wall and I know we've heard a lot of stuff since then. So I don't know if you remember, but it was related (laughs) to these men. Do you want to know what these men were being indicted for? I know you do because you already asked. We've arrived. They made the the whole thing up. They made the whole thing up. Now, one thing I didn't mention, I had so many notes and so many things, and it's hard to pick and choose what to talk about as the conversation has kind of evolved naturally. But by this time, the reward money was up to like $70,000 or $80,000. Oh, so they were trying to get the reward money. Yes. By saying that Abraham Lincoln had- That was the part that- (laughs) really got me like why did you choose abraham lincoln (laughs) that's so random yeah you could have picked i I don't know bill clinton (laughs) abraham lincoln i mean nobody walks around seven feet tall bone thin with With a beard but no mustache (laughs) a goatee beard and a top, he had to have been wearing a, a top hat in my well, opinion. Well, yeah. Yeah, he had to because otherwise... <laughs> and a would tuxedo. Would he look like Abraham Lincoln without the hat? Yeah. These pieces of shit made the entire thing up to try to line their pockets with the reward money. And... After investigators began to disprove little bits and pieces of their story, all of this was sort of evolving a year before the indictments. So this had been going on for a while. The men threatened to kill two officers. So they got additional charges for that. What did we say earlier about the stupidity of people? Listen, but wait. There's more. There's more? <laughs> because home dude number one, who was basically the mastermind who fabricated this entire uh, made up excuse story. Excuse me. Excuse me. I object to the <laughs> object term, to the term mastermind. mastermind. I'm sorry. Big, enormous piece of shit number one, who basically <laughs> fabricated this entire story, also received another charge for using violent physical and verbal coercion to convince his 20 year old 
daughter to testify on his behalf and provide false information to the grand jury at his indictment. She said that he returned home around 4 or 5 a.m. on the 15th and was crying and shaking. She said he was trying to explain to me that he thought he might have seen someone get killed, but he wasn't real specific. He said he had got out to use the bathroom and had heard some gunshots in a house. He had her lie on the stand to back up his story. So even though this guy gets out to use the bathroom, sees a possible killing, murder, spree, and there are people asking for calls, give us, he's what, so traumatized it takes him six months to a year to say, oh yeah, I remember. They came forward after about six months, yeah. Okay. And did they have an excuse that they were so terrified of the ghost of Abe Lincoln that they they just couldn't speak? So there's got to be some legal term for this, like... I don't think it's lying. Yeah, it's, of course, the word is on the tip of my tongue and never going to come. <laughs> Impeding an investigation. Yes, I Interfering with an investigation. Yes. They had quite a few charges against them. And I hope, I hope they were found guilty of everyone. In fact, they were. One year later, both of them were found guilty. The head honcho, is that better? The mastermind. <laughs> <laughs> the one who wove this elaborate web of horrible, <sighs> atrocious lies of selfishness and greed across 17 interviews with police, by the way. And coerced his daughter. Yes, was sentenced to 20 years in prison. And the other who simply cooperated the first man's story was sentenced to five I think 20 years is the minimum you should get. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to try and make money on something like that, it's just, it's 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 so soulless and disgusting and vile. It just It's horrible. It's horrible. Yeah. This case is just surrounded by horrible people, horrible, selfish people. I think people often forget that human beings are involved Mm -hmm. who had people who love them and miss them and are brokenhearted and want answers. Two and a half years after this happened, so six years after the crime, the case was still not cold. We're on September 25th, so pretty close to almost exactly six years after the crime. Officers had a press release that they were looking into a vehicle they suspected was linked to the crime. Wow, six years. Mm-hmm. By November of that same year, a post was shared to the FBI website that indicated authorities were seeking information related to a man sitting in a car on the highway near the short home early on the morning of the crime. And at the six and a half year mark, so February 2009 now, the FBI released a sketch of the man who they believed had been sitting in that car. And you can check this sketch out. I'm sorry to anyone who doesn't like an enormous amount of many details, But since this is an unsolved case, I wanted to share as much as we could just on the off chance that it triggers anything for anyone. That's true. Somebody came forward after six years and says, I saw this car. It's just sort of come back to me. And then they described the person who was sitting in the car. I could barely describe the person that I saw. Yesterday morning, who gave me I a agree. coffee. I agree. These and closet sketches amaze me because I don't think I could describe you yeah. accurately enough. <laughs> let, let me think. Well, let's see. What, what colors are here? <laughs> I mean, admittedly, I don't know much about how it is that they're put together. Like they put it together and then the person says, oh, the nose is a little more this way or the cheek is a little more that way. Yeah, I mean, I've I've seen it on television when they have a sketch (laughs) artist. And no, I mean, it's a fascinating process because you think originally that you're just sitting there describing them, but they actually have shapes of faces. Mm. And then you say, oh, yeah, it was round like this. Mm. And then, well, what about his nose? And they'll give you some noses. Nose a little broader than that. So, Mm. I mean, you always think sketch artists that they're just sitting there sketching from your description. And probably now a lot of it is done on computer. 
They can change the nose, make the eyebrows thicker, thinner, further apart. I would be curious to be given the test to see if I could describe I my own. I would do that. That yeah, my own so husband to me. and come up with something that actually looked like him. But remember, there was another case we were talking about where they had done a sketch and this guy's friends were saying, damn, bro, that looks just like you. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it can be done. Absolutely. And I guess that didn't bring anybody in. Well, first of all, you can check the sketch out. It's kind of different than our normal cases. Usually we don't put pictures because again, we're trying to protect people's privacy as much as we can in our little corner of the universe. But since this is unsolved, we are going to put these on our socials so you can check them out there. The man was described as being in his 40s and having a ruddy or weathered complexion. Unfortunately, these components of his complexion were not really well reflected in the sketch. Mm. Investigators did share that they were concerned about sketch sketching the imperfections that had been described on the man's face because they thought if it was an inch off or on the other side than in real life, it might stop people from calling in tips just because Hmm. of those finer details. They were also unable to age adjust the composite sketch appropriately, which left the pencil drawn face looking at least 10 years younger than the actual man in whose likeness it was created. I'm guessing he didn't look anything like Abraham Lincoln. He did not have (laughs) a beard with no mustache or a top hat. Very disappointing. (laughs) just can't even imagine that that's the description you come up with to convince people. Yeah, you know who that son of a bitch looked like? He looked like Abraham Lincoln. That's the detail that's really going to sell our story, man. We'll tell them he looked like Abraham Lincoln. That would have just set off all kinds of alarms in my head if I was sitting there listening. Also, they couldn't be sure if the guy was seven feet tall because in this case, he was sitting inside a vehicle. That's true. That's true. The sketch, they couldn't provide any additional physical descriptors because he was only seen from the chest up because he was sitting in his 1998 1002 white single cab two-ton flatbed truck with wooden rails isn't that very specific to me even though they couldn't provide additional physical descriptors investigators did share that they believed the man's character traits may include shyness standoffishness that they didn't talk a lot or explain a lot about their life or business and that they may focus in on children more than people of their own age Mm mm-hmm In March, the FBI released an age-progressed version of the composite. Okay. Which definitely looks more age-appropriate, I would say. The first one, when I saw it, I was like, oh, so he's young. Okay. Well, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, I think you should. Almost a year later, in January 2010, the investigation had apparently taken detectives to the South Piedmont area of Virginia, where they were interviewing several people. And then in May, investigators converged on several areas of South Carolina, where Mike had gone with an employee the spring and summer before he was murdered, seeking work after his mobile home business fell on hard times. And as more time passed, while an increased reward, which by now was up to $100,000 in August of 2010, and coverage on America's Most Wanted in early 2011 increased the number of tips being called in, 30 pieces of evidence were submitted for retesting after advances in DNA technology which had occurred by August of 2011. And this was making people a little hopeful. Investigators also decided they would sort of look at things differently. I know I've mentioned this a couple times, but at the 13-year mark, they considered that Jennifer and not her parents may have been the intended victim. And Hey, they, I came up with that in the first episode. It only took you like five minutes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
And so apparently they asked Jennifer's childhood friends to think back to their childhoods and try to remember literally anyone who paid too much attention to Jennifer or even the kids at the school and the friends group, generally a parent, a teacher, a coach. This girl was incredibly active in her community, in her school. She did sports. She did all kinds of things. So there were a lot of adults in and out of her life as well, including all of these various random people they never could track down who worked for her dad for five minutes or one job. The only problem with a coach or a teacher is if they took her Well, I guess if they were single or something, where would they have hidden her until they'd killed her and then drove down to North Carolina to dispose of her body? I don't know. I'm guessing they didn't come up with anything 13 years later. Yeah, and eventually the case did go cold. (sighs) By 2021, a lot had changed in the dynamics of the case. A lot. I mean, the only public person of interest ever named had died. Bowman. Yeah. The family Mm -hmm. home had long since burned to the ground. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Weird. Weird, right? Most of the original law enforcement officers who worked the case had retired. And in October of that year, just over 19 years after the horrible crimes first occurred, the cold case was reopened. All Hmm. new team of investigators, they were ready to go, they had a press release, but no new information has been made public since. And Hmm. investigators say that they are no closer to solving this. And that is the end. For now, hopefully only for now. I think it's those random cases where there's not an obvious suspect, the spouse, the child, the jealous boyfriend. I'm guessing this was somebody who had very little connection with the family, and I still think it was all about Jennifer. They saw her, they stalked her, they took her. I think I agree that... It might have been, I don't know. Are you familiar with Tara Grinstead's murder? Mm, I don't think so. I mean, I don't have the details memorized, but she was a beauty queen and she was still active in that community. She still did coaching and that sort of thing for pageants. She was a teacher. So she wasn't a child. No, no, she wasn't a child. She was a teacher and she disappeared in 2005, like gone without a trace. It took them, I don't even know how long 12 years or something like that to find these two random kids because one guy his girlfriend came forward he was just a random guy yeah he had been in her class but that was about it he just went to her house and just killed her completely out of the blue and that's what i think this might must be It's just someone who had almost no association with them. Just something so random. Right, because they couldn't tie anybody. Like someone who had been stalking Jennifer from afar or I don't know. It's just Could be somebody who saw her at that little convenience store that she would walk to. Yeah. And just started putting this plan together. But there are cold cases that have been cold for years that they do solve. So we can absolutely hope and pray. I think it's becoming more and more common, especially as DNA forensics continue to evolve. Unfortunately, in this case, they don't really have any DNA. But it's not to say that they're these remarkable cases that they solve years later. Yeah. So everybody, check out that picture on our site and see what you think. See if it's somebody that looks familiar. You never know. You never know what it might trigger. Yeah. Some random story that your uncle's cousin's brother's sister used to tell. (laughs) You know? I've reached that age where wherever I go, I'm like, oh my God, that person looks so familiar. (laughs) Wait, that's been happening to me lately. Everybody looks familiar to me. I'm not at the same age as you, but that's been happening to me (laughs) for the past couple of maybe weeks or months. Every person I see or every movie I watch. Oh, I think I've seen this movie. Oh, I think I know that person. Well, it's funny when you you watch British television and movies, it seems like there are only 12 actors in all of England because they'll be in and you'll be like, oh my God, 
I've seen that person before. What were they in? And half of them were in Downton Abbey. Everyone from Harry Potter is in every other thing that exists. They're great actors. I'm not judging. I'm happy to see them in everything. Yeah. Well, next week, we are celebrating our one year with our 52nd episode. And we're going to take a little bit of a break from awful soul crushing sad terrible details and we're just gonna talk about some memories (laughs) recap talk about where it all began and where we've gone ask some silly questions ask some of y'all silly questions right and your serious questions no judgment against serious questions i just i just need some silliness right now after this this story If you guys want to reach out, you always can. Got any feedback for the 52nd episode? We'll take it. (laughs) You can email us, murdererunow at gmail.com. And as always, you can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at murdererunowpodcast. And be sure to go and check out the sketches of this guy and show it to your cousins, brothers, dads, uncle's sister's girlfriend three times removed (laughs) who lived in North Carolina in 2002 could crack it all wide open all right mom anything to add uh no can't wait till (laughs) next time and where we share all our favorite moments all right well I'll see you in a week bye bye